1 Corinthians today, chapter 13. You probably know it well if you've been a Christian for any matter of time. It's one of the best loved chapters, best known chapters in the New Testament. It's well loved. Many people who know nothing about the Bible uh, can probably quote a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One man said that this is the greatest, strongest, and most deep thing that Paul has ever written. Uh, the world uses um, th this chapter on plaques and tracks and wedding bulletins and cross-stitch pillows. Uh, everywhere in the world, this is a very popular chapter. Uh, even Alan Jackson, in a song he wrote in response to September 11th, said, Hey, I know Jesus, and I talk to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things he gave us, but the greatest is love. In chapter 12, uh, we, we began a part of a series uh, regarding spiritual gifts and how God distributes gifts among Christians as he wills. And there's a variety of those gifts. And that theme of spiritual gifts goes clear through chapter 14. And, and sandwiched in between those is a text concerning love. But it's not just, you know, Paul got bored about talking about spiritual gifts and he'll, you know, pick it up later. Uh, he wants us to be um, operating in or not, not operating. We want to examine ourselves in light of love. Uh, the Corinthian church was a church body that had marks of spiritual charisma. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says uh, that they had come short in no gift. There were a lot of different gifts and a lot of different varieties taking place in the Corinthian church. And Paul takes chapters 12 through 14 to address some of the issues that had brought to him concerning the Corinthians' gifts and their use of them among the public congregational gatherings. And so they were known to be a charismatic, Pentecostal-type church. But in addition to being noteworthy for their charisma and their gifts in operation, the Corinthians were well-known and famous for some not-so-good things. The Corinthians, and if you just kind of flipped through the book, you would just find these outlines of that they were a prideful people, puffed up with their so-called knowledge and wisdom that they had that was worldly and sinful at heart. They would look down on those who were suffering for Christ as if they were better than those who were laboring and suffering for Jesus. They were known for being divisive and creating factions and cliques that lined up behind their favorite pastors or apostles. They had a carnality and a sinful fleshliness about them in the form of sexual immorality and an approval of appalling incestuous relationships. They were suing one another, Christian brothers taking one another to court and that before unbelieving judges. They were a people who were allowing their Christian freedoms and liberties to become an occasion for their brothers and sisters to fall into sin. Their marriages were ending in divorce. Their women were forsaking God's designed authority structure and walking in proud, open insubordination, which was a reflection of their submissive heart to the Lord. Church potlucks had become selfish feeding frenzies, and the Lord's Supper was defiled through gluttony and drunkenness, as if it hadn't been bad enough. Spiritual gifts were being used in disorder, and there was pride or self-pity in the gifts that had been distributed to each member of the church. So Paul takes a moment 
and declares that beyond the super charismania, charismatic, the ecstatic and the dramatic and the bone chilling and the goosebump causing stuff that so often happens within the church, there's something way more important, way more important. God would desire his people to walk in love for one another. That out of all the incredible gifts that they might have and and all the ways that the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself in the church, God desires us to love one another. Perhaps your Bible has the heading before verse 1 that says, this is the greatest gift. It's the greatest gift. Love. Charity. The love chapter. The word love in the Greek is the word agape. You've probably heard that before. But it's actually one of the least frequently used words in classical Greek. In the few occasions that it's used, it speaks of the highest and noblest form of love, which sees something infinitely precious in its object. This high and incredible form of love that sees something infinitely precious in its object. Agape love is not something that you muster in and of yourselves. And in the Greek, there's a lot of different kinds of love. Perhaps you've heard of eros love, which is where we get the word erotic. It's a sexual, perverted love. There's phileo, which means brotherly love. There's storge, which is kind of a I like chocolate chip cookies type of love. And there's this agape. It's a love that is unconditional It loves regardless of circumstances, appearances, behaviors, persecutions, disrespect, or lack of reciprocal love in return coming back our way. Agape love remains. And at no point in this Bible study today should you hear me saying, all right, people, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps and just start loving each other. No, because this kind of love doesn't come from self-motivation for self-glorification. This is a love that comes from God himself, from the source of love. And Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the fruits of being filled with the Spirit is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit, is love. And then underneath that are all kinds of goodly gifts that come from love. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and others. Love. Love is paramount. It's the type of love that comes from God himself. Now, before I get into this chapter, as we read the text, I wanted to read from Leon Morris, a a commentary that I read through. He concludes the portion of this chapter by saying, the commentator cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense of, that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here is what is true of all scripture, is true in a special measure, that no comment can be adequate to so great a theme, yet no commentator can excuse himself from the duty of trying to make plain what these matchless words have come to signify for him. And no Christian can excuse himself from the duty of trying to show in his life what these words have come to mean for him. I'll tell you, 1 Corinthians 13, gonna be an easy, cheesy, peasy chapter to go through. And you know what I found? A man who thought he loved so well didn't love at all. Lacking in love. Found myself crying out for more and more love 
in all areas of my life. As we begin the chapter and look at the text, the first three verses show us a whole bunch of great actions, great and marvelous and fantastic Christian actions, but what it's really like when they're not accompanied by love. Verse one says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And so a great action of being able to speak with tongues, a spiritual gift we saw in chapter 12 and in uh, chapter 14, the, the gift of tongues, be able to have that gift, but also to speak with tongues of men with, with a very eloquent uh, dialect. The New Living Translation says, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, and to be able to speak with eloquence that was so admired in Corinth. Man, they loved a golden tongue preacher. They would have loved Chrysostom in the third century. But without love, if, if I didn't love others, the New Living says, I have become a sounding, resounding, clanging, blaring, brass or gong, or a clanging, tinkling cymbal. Now, this is not pretty music that he's talking about here. This is a noise nuisance. Very tempted this morning to just have a couple of drumsticks in my back pocket and to just turn around and start on the drums, you know, and just have you guys cover your ears and keep doing it until you did cover your ears. That's essentially what Paul is talking about here. Speaking with incredible oratory skill or having a spiritual gift like the gift of tongues without love, it's noisy. It's a nuisance. But it has Corinthian cultic connotations behind it. The people in Corinth worshipped all kinds of things. They offered up sacrifices to demons and other gods and so forth. They worshipped Dionysius, the god of nature, and Sibelus, the goddess of wild animals. And in their worship of these pagan deities, they used things called cacuses, which were like these gongs, these noisy gongs, pieces of copper and cymbals, the single-toned instrument. And they would noisily call people to, uh, to come to worship or chase away demons with these instruments. And Paul says, man, if you are just about the dramatic things that you do with flair and all kinds of spiritual pomp, but you're not loving you completely missed the mark. And you're just like those pagan cult worshipers up on the hill. Verse 2 says, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so the great actions that could be taking place in someone who calls themselves a Christian's life would be prophecy foretelling the, the future or speaking forth the heart of God or declaring these mysteries and knowledge and having these wonder-working, miraculous powers, knowing the mysteries of God. This refers to the deep counsels of God that have been secret up until this point, but now are revealed to his saints. The knowledge here speaks of truth unknown. You might have all that good stuff going for you, but if you have not love, you're nothing. The Phillips translation puts it from the 1940s. If I have the gift of foretelling the future and hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but the very secrets of God, and if I also have that absolute faith which can move mountains, but have no love, 
I amount to nothing at all. The Bible confirms this when Jesus speaks of the final days, the days of judgment in Matthew 7, 22, where many will say to the Lord on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus will say to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say, oh, this is the wrong verse. I thought I was continuing it on, but I'm not. Jesus says to them, get away from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. There's a group of people who will be doing all kinds of just wonderful, fantastical things in the name of God, and yet they've missed true obedience. True obedience, Jesus tells a scribe, is this, that they would love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength, and they would love their neighbors as themselves. What is true obedience? What is obeying the commands of God? Love. And so if you are a person who has all kinds of dramatic flair about you, even great and wonderful spiritual looking things, but you don't love those that God has placed around you, you are fooling yourself. And five times in the book of John, John gets into that and says, if you think that you are walking in the light, but you hate your brother, you are deceived and you walk in darkness until now. You say you have Jesus as your Lord, you don't have Jesus as your Lord because Jesus is a Lord of love. It's correcting to us, is it not? That some people, even preachers, will find themselves in hell even though they've preached many messages and led many people to Christ, yet they themselves have never been transformed by love, never walked in love. Now, this is a person that's prophesying. This is a person that's casting out demons. This is a person that's moving mountains out of their place. Great things, but without love. The negative here, he says, is I am nothing. Notice the differences as Paul says these things. He went from, I'm a clanging gong and a cymbal to, I am nothing. Literally translated, I am identical to nothing. I am nobody and I exist as nothing and nobody. Now you would think that the, uh, the mountain being removed out of its place would get you a spot on the local nightly news, don't you think? You'd have the cameras and the flashbangs going on around you. I think that's actually a bad weapon in war, flashbangs. Flashbulbs is what I meant to say. You might just be, oh, yeah, this is the guy that, yeah, he did that. He's foretelling the future. Great. And the Lord says, you're nothing. You're equal to nothing and nobody if you don't have love. Verse 3 goes on with these great works. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Literally, Paul is saying, if I dole out all that I am in food and in goods, or if I bestow my goods to such a degree that I should be burned, maybe even be a martyr for Christ, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now he went from, without love, I'm like a clanging cymbal and a tinkling brass or whatever, or, or he went on, I am nothing and then he goes on, if I was to give away everything I had but didn't have love, it wouldn't profit me anything. How interesting that benevolent giving and sacrifice that's motivated by agape love, though one is constantly giving out, he actually is profited through many things, including heavenly rewards and joy and satisfaction, knowing that God was honored and glorified. So what does this love look like that I need to have, Rory. Well, Paul's going to give us 15 things that it does and doesn't look like. 
If love were a diamond, each one of these 15 things would be different facets of this love. They're not simply words, but they are actions to be lived out. And in the Greek, they are in their present continual tense, which means that these are things that should be happening now and forever in our life. It's not coincidental, though, that these next four verses are characteristic of Jesus. Every time you see the, love, the word love here, put the name Jesus there. And you'll find that Jesus is the epitome of love. He's the, he's the example of love. It's very difficult, though, to put your own name there. Rory is patient. Rory is kind. Rory is not rude. Rory never seeks his own and this and that. And it'd be wrong. It'd be a lie. But you put Jesus in those verses. Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't seek his own. Jesus hopes all things and endures all things and bears all things. And man, you've got the gospel right here. What does love look like? Leon Morris said, the love which is to characterize and control the Christian community is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. In other words, these people probably don't deserve love, but you don't either. And when you realize that, God works something through you, through his spirit, that causes you to lay your life down in a loving act. John Stott said, this love is a servant of the will, not a victim of the emotion. You know, storge, eros, Philos, all of those things, man, they're contingent on so many things. And, and man, if you make my emotions just right, then I'll love you. Not agape love. Agape love is something that the Spirit of God works through you no matter what's going on. And so verse 4 begins, love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. So beginning with love suffering long, it essentially means love is patient. Love is patient with others as they continually fail you and fail you and fail you. The Proverbs tell us that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And that he who covers, in Proverbs 17, 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. Paul exhorted us from 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, to comfort the faint-hearted, to uphold the weak, and to be patient with all. We're to cover one another's sins. Now, that doesn't mean people have sinned, and so we're act, you know, turn a blind eye to it. No, we still address sin. We still confront in sin. But here's the thing. We don't let sin continually, as people fail us, we don't let that turn us away. We're incredibly patient with these individuals. We don't have a short fuse we have a long fuse. It takes a long time for us to finally give in, exploding. Some of us are very patient in circumstances, but not very patient with the people around us. Aristotle taught that the great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury and to strike back in retaliation at the slightest offense. If you wanted to show that you were a good guy and a tough guy and a great Greek, that's what you did. You retaliated right away. 
But Paul says that that's not what love does. Love is actually patient. And we see this in Jesus himself. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us that to this we were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus took it. You know, many Christians say, man, I'm not supposed to be a doormat that's continually walked on. Guess what? As a Christian, that's exactly what you are. Because that's what our leader was. And that's what we do to him so often. We just walk all over him. To be patient as Jesus is patient with us. As 2 Peter 3.9 declares of the Father, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our God is a patient God. History records the story of a great atheist named Robert Ingersoll. In the 19th century, he was a very popular evolutionist, speaking on atheism, going on a teaching circuit all over the globe. And he had a favorite spot in his talk where he would take five minutes and take out a stopwatch and say, if God is real, then I defy him right now to strike me dead within the next five minutes, or it's just proof that he's not real, that there is no God. And so he'd keep talking, and his little stopwatch would go off, and he'd laugh, and he'd mock, and he'd say, ha-ha, there's no God, I'm still alive, my heart still beats, until one day, a very perceptive individual in the audience stood up and said, did Mr. Ingersoll think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? God is patient. He doesn't even want Mr. Ingersoll to perish. He longs for him to come to repentance. Love is patient. And love is kind. It's affectionate. Love is loving. It's sympathetic and it's helpful in in its kindness. It has a forbearing and gentle, sympathetic nature about it. Phillips translates it this in its kindness That love looks for a way of being constructive. That's love. It's not critical. It's not looking for a way to tear down. But love is edifying. Love is kind. Love is often mentioned hand in hand with, or excuse me, kindness is actually mentioned hand in hand with forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says that we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Man, God has shown such kindness to us and his mercy and forgiveness of us, and we ought to in turn show that kindness, forgiving, tenderhearted nature towards those around us. Remember our mom saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything nice at all. They've tried to drill that into our head. What love does do And what love doesn't do are mentioned here. And here we see that love does not envy. It's the Greek word zeloi, where we get the word zeal. Love doesn't become zealous with jealousy. Envy here speaks of regard for the advantages seen to be enjoyed by others with a grudging gaze. It speaks of looking at something with malicious intent 
And it becomes a burning and color produces, produ produced in the face by deep emotion. It's ardor, it's zeal, it's jealousy. And we see that in King Saul from the first day David was victorious in battle against Goliath. Saul eyed David with envy from that day forward. And the Gospels tell us that Pontius Pilate recognized that the Jews had handed Jesus over to be killed because of envy. Envy. Guys, it's in you. It's in you. And it's in me. How do you respond when your friend's name comes up for a promotion, but yours doesn't? Or your friend gets a new shiny vehicle or toy or finds out she's pregnant or getting married, whatever it might be, that spurs within you an envy about it. Now, envy doesn't always just want what the other people have. Sometimes envy and extreme wickedness just wants them not to have it. Well, I don't want it, but I don't want them to have it either. Have you ever been there? And one Scottish commentator says, that is meanness of soul that can sink no lower. See that in King Solomon's life, when there were two harlots who got pregnant through their business. And as they had given birth, one harlot rolled over on top of her baby in the middle of the night and killed this baby. And so she snuck over and grabbed the other one and switched them. And the other, being aware of this, brought the woman before the king and said, have justice here. She's stolen my baby. This is my baby. But the other woman said, no, it's my baby. So King Solomon, very wisely, says, bring me a sword. We'll chop the baby in two. And both of you can have part of the baby. And the original mom says, don't do this. Just let her have the baby. Let him live. And the other mom, even though she already got it, said, nope, cut it in half. I don't want it. Did you see the meanness of soul in that woman that could have sinked no lower? One man said, once that heart is in the church, it is on the brink of destruction from disease. Let's catch it when we see it and let's crucify such envy. We see that love does not parade itself. It does not brag or boast or walk around with the song pomp and circumstance going on behind it. And synonymous with it, it's parading itself. It's not to be puffed up, not proud, not arrogant. In the Corinthian church, man, they were a church that was very proud, very arrogant. And Paul calls them out in chapter 4. We were there like 10 years ago or something. He says, who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Man, everything that you have is the grace of God being poured out upon you. So don't, you know, don't get boastful and puffed up as if you earned it on your own. William Carey was a missionary who'd been called to India, even though he was raised as a cobbler's son. I used to think that was someone that made peach cobbler for a living. Nope, it's making shoes. But God used this shoe salesman's son to, to translate scripture into 34 different Indian dialects by the end of his life. But in his ministry, he was despised because he'd come from such a humble beginnings. He was a shoe salesman. And one night at a dinner party, a man tried to humiliate him by saying, so I hear, Mr. Carey, that you are a shoemaker. Oh no, said William Carey. I am not a shoemaker. I'm a shoe mender. 
The guy thought that he would do William Carey down, but Carey put himself lower. What Christianity sees who we really are before God, and apart from his grace, we're not even shoe makers, we're shoe menders. In a world that exists of windbags and fatheads, it's hard not to join the ranks, but the Lord wouldn't have us join them. He would have us walk in humility. Verse five tells us as we move along that love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked and it thinks no evil. So more of these facets of love in the negative sense. Here's what love doesn't do. So if you're doing this, you're not loving. It does not behave rudely. This speaks of being dishonorable or maybe indecent. It has connotations with our behavior and how we act. I've noticed this last week that a new favorite phrase among my children are, Russell's being rude. Laney's being rude. It's, it's new. You notice these new things that your kids say. And I say, you both are being rude. If you were to take a cross-reference tool when you're studying the Bible, you'll find that most of the other scriptures dealing with, dealing with rudeness and our behavior issues, they're found in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> you can go through 1 Corinthians and just see, man, this is not love. These people are not loving each other. There's factions and cliques. There's prayer without head coverings. Well, that's not the big issue. The issue is there were authority issues that resulted in rude behavior by the women in the church services. There was cutting in line and gorging themselves at the love feasts. They were forbidding one another to use spiritual gifts. One Bible translation says that love is having good manners. And you know, even within the church, manners are lacking. So often I notice that I'll hop down off the stage here during the service and I'll be talking with someone and people will come and they'll just, as if I wasn't talking to anybody, just step right in between me and that individual and interrupt. And you know what? Right after I said it, I interrupted somebody after church last service. I was like, hey, excuse me. So it's all about me right now. I would like to tell you something, okay? And that's just plain and simple rudeness. You know, disrupting uh, the service and distracting people around you as the word of God is coming forth getting up from the service and, 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 and leaving, you know, for the purpose of just, uh, you know, going and visiting and, and, you know, refilling your water bottle, whatever it might be. You know what? Honestly, if you, you're not going to wet your pants or die of thirst, I would encourage you to stay here, not because you're being rude to me. That's not the issue, but you're being rude to the Lord as he's trying to speak by his spirit to you. You know, for some of you, this is the one time in your week or even month for some of you that the Holy Spirit is, is able, you're sitting under the word and he's speaking to you. Don't be rude to the Lord. Watch your garbage and your messes lying around the church. Don't just leave it for other people to pick up. That's not loving. For those of you that are parents like myself, when we let our children run around between us like little monkeys and jump all over the chairs and come up on the stage and bang their gong, the gongs up here and you know uh, interrupt conversations, just I just noticed it myself and I'm speaking. I'm so convicted as I, I'm like, man, I want to be able to. Hey, son, don't be rude, buddy. Yeah, we got all these kids in a little building, and we got to be aware of that. Kids are going to get their energy burnt out. But let's, let's teach our children about love and how love is not rude. A synonym to rude is being crude. The speech that comes out of our mouth, being vulgar. It's certainly not being polite. Love is polite. Love uses manners. 
William Barclay said, There is a graciousness in Christian love which never forgets that courtesy and tact and politeness are loving, lovely things. Husbands, do you use manners towards your wife? Are you polite with your wife? You know, do you treat her as Solomon treated the Shulamite? Just with, with great care, great tact, great politeness. Many of us don't. We belch and, and you know, leave things laying around and are inconsiderate of our bride. Love is not rude. The next thing we see is love does not seek its own. It doesn't seek after its own selfish purposes. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says, Let no one seek his own, but each the other's well-being. And Philippians says the same thing in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the other's interests. A Christian is others-centered. Now, don't hear from me today a slap in the face telling you, just be better about thinking about other people. No, I would do what Paul would do, and I'd say, look at Jesus. He's the epitome of this selfless love. And Paul does that. As in, in Philippians 2, he just moves right on to saying, let that mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who even though he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. It goes on, but for the sake of time, I think you get the point. He says, hey, don't just look out for your own interests. Don't be selfish. Look out for other people. Put their needs above your own. That's what Jesus did. He was God, and he came in the flesh, and he had every right for everyone to just bow down and serve him and wait on him right there. Is that what he did? No, he bowed himself down and he served others. A similar passage in Romans 15, one through three, that we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, leading to that guy being built up. And then he says, look at Jesus. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Selfishness has no place in the Christian church. There's a tombstone that reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. But another tombstone from St. Paul's Cathedral says, Sacred to, the, to our memory is General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. Love is always unselfish. Very easy for us to say. Very hard to practice. Love is not provoked, Paul goes on. That means love is not aroused to anger. Like Moses was aroused to anger by the children of Israel in the wilderness, and he struck the rock twice. Proverbs tells us that a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Is that, meant, is that you? Acting foolishly because of your short fuse? Obviously, there's patience lacking there. And James 1.19 tells us, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
Man, as Christians, as we're walking in humility, as we're walking in selflessness, as we're walking with, with, with manners, even, and patience. Man, everyone's dying of coughing out there. We'll find that we're not provoked. Now, Jesus was provoked. Jesus was provoked by unrighteousness. And we will be, too, as we see sin elevated in our culture around us and creeping its way into the church. But that's not, the, that's not the provoking that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about touchiness with our wife and our kids and our friends and an unwillingness to see the selfishness in my life and blaming it all on the failure of those around me. You know what? We want people to love us the way we love ourselves. And we are all about our kingdom, the kingdom of Rory being built up. But God is in the business of tearing down our kingdom and humbling us so that his kingdom can be built up. And so he brings people into our lives and he brings a wife into our life and he brings kids into our lives that very have a wonderful ability to tear our kingdom down. All right? I meant that. I didn't. Well, however I meant it, I said it. Okay. And so when we begin to have our kingdom chipped away, it provokes us. It angers us. I want what I want when I want it, and that happens to be now. And the Lord says, hey, guess what? It doesn't matter what you want. It's about me. And when that begins to chip away, we get provoked to wrath and provoked to anger. Love thinks no evil, which essentially means it keeps no accounts or even mental records of evil. The NIV says it keeps no record of being wronged. Love is not resentful. We're not like Scrooge who keeps records of, of wrong. We're like the Scottish men of old who would carry these special marks like flags that, around with them that represented the feuds that they were in and the people who wronged them. And when they went home, they'd either hang them on their walls or fly them from like a flagpole. When they'd go to the feast, they'd set them at the table with them. These are the people who've totally ticked me off. And I'm gonna challenge them to a, a duel after this or something. And you know what? That's how we can be. Have you ever met anybody like that? You meet them and know them for five minutes and they already go off on everybody that's ever wronged them or hurt them or harmed them and they've kept a record of all of those things. But love doesn't think evil. Love doesn't keep track of how everyone has ever hurt us. And you know what? The greatest love never does either. In fact, in Romans chapter four, the psalmist is quoted who says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man. That means, oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. A man is happy when the Lord doesn't count his sin against him keeping a record of wrongs. In fact, I think it's uh, the psalmist that says, uh, if the Lord were to keep track of all of our wrongs, who could stand before him? It thinks no evil. Verse six, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So often rejoicing in iniquity happens through gossip. People begin to tell us how this person has failed and what they've done, and we just want to hear it. And the Proverbs tell us that the words of a talebearer or a gossip are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I love a good gossip story. In my flesh, it's like, oh, tell me more. You know, I want to hear. That's sin. That's wickedness. And we rejoice in iniquity in that. 
We're not to rejoice in iniquity, not cheering about unjust things or wrongdoings. But the correlation to that is that we would rejoice in the truth. The New Living Translation, that love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. You know, hearing about uh, the man who uh, recently had his daughter killed in the school shooting in Colorado and how uh, and within a week of her dying, he just released to the press that he had forgiven this man and, uh, and begs others to forgive as well. And many of those types of trials you see on Facebook, even among Christians, this is the greatest form of the scum of the earth, and I hope they burn in hell forever. Christians, people that I fellowship with, write those things. And it says in the scriptures that we're not to rejoice about injustice or wickedness, but we're to rejoice when the truth wins out. Verse 7 tells us love bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love bears all things. Literally, it means we hold on to people and hold fast like a watertight vessel. Things that are difficult and difficult to deal with. What kind of things are difficult to deal with? Well, we see here all things that are difficult. We read in 1 Peter earlier today that Jesus himself bore our iniquities on the tree. He showed love by bearing with us, did he not? If you were to take a list of every sin and transgression against the Lord that was placed upon Jesus 2,000 years ago at Mount Calvary, there'd be quite a kaleidoscope, a colorful list of sins, would there not be? And Jesus bore with us in every one of those, taking them upon him. How about the people who've wronged you? Quite a list. Are you to bear with them? Well, what about, hey, 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 all things, all things. It bears all things. And Galatians 6, 2 says, we're to bear one another's burdens. That's a fulfillment of the law of Christ. And Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Man, among Christianity, guys, we are not loving each other if we're not patient with one another. If we're not bearing through those difficult things with one another. There was a time when some people left the church and they were people that I just deeply, deeply loved and felt a connection with. And I begged them to reconsider. I said, I love you guys. I love you guys. And I hope that you would love me too. And, and I quoted Colossians and I said, man, can you just bear with us? No, we're not perfect, but we endeavor for truth and we're doing our best and we're crying out for God and we're, we just believe, we have faith that God is leading us and we're not perfect, but could you bear with us? Could you forgive us any way we've wronged you? No response. No response. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. That speaks of unsuspiciously believing all that's not palpably false. When people are just all out lying to you, you see it right in front of you, the evidence is there. Dude, you're lying to me. I'm not going to believe you in that. Hey, love believes all things. That's not what it's talking about. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. In the Greek, it means love is easily persuaded. 
Remember this regarding other brothers and sisters, not just believing God for things or hoping in God, but believing in each other and hoping for one another. Love is eager to believe the best. We see here that love hopes all things. Love hopes what is good of another, even when others have ceased to hope. Has there ever been a relationship or a circumstance in any one of your lives to which you've said, it's over, there's no chance, there will be no reconciliation and there's no possibility for restoration. There's no possibility of unity again. I was preaching first service and I I read that out from my notes and the Lord was like, this person, this situation and that one, you've given up. You have no hope. But love hopes that there will be reconciliation there. Thinking that it's over is nothing other than the absence of love in our lives. Love endures all things. Endures what? Can you say it with me? All things. That's what love does. Love never fails, verse 8 says. Now you might be all hopped up and hyped up about your gifts of the Spirit. But I want to tell you this, where there are prophecies, they're going to fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it's going to vanish away. But love, love never fails. Agape love from the throne of God never fails. It's the type of love that's unconditional. It's not from you, but its source is the Lord. Love never fails is the Greek word hupomonai. And it's a picture of a soldier who is at exhaustion in the battle. And it seems hopeless. It seems they're going to lose. Everybody's getting mowed down around him. There's no way we can win. And yet soldiers all across history have been there in the trenches, machine gun fire over. And their commanding officer says, charge. There's no hope. I'm exhausted. I've got trench foot. I've got no food. I haven't eaten in a couple days. I haven't slept in many days. And now I'm supposed to climb up over this trench and run through the barbed wire and the machine gun fire and the blood and the guts. And you know what? Soldiers do it all the time. They suffer long and they never fail. I was listening to a story this week about a couple that came in for marriage counseling and their marriage was on the rocks and it seemed over. And the pastor just very wisely said, hey, can you quote to me any part of your marriage vows? And the man said, the husband said, I vow to love you for better or for worse. And he said, hey, well, what is it now? And the husband said, it's, it's worse right now. We're in the worst part. And the pastor said, well, what did you vow to do? I vowed that I would love her in worse. Guys, that's really the sum of a marriage counseling opportunity. Book closed. Time clock punched, head on out. Rely on love. Seek the Lord for agape love in your marriage. It'll never fail. It believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. It's not rude, it's patient, it's long-suffering, it's not selfish. Now the works of the flesh are just the opposite of that. Galatians chapter five, verse 19 tells us the works of the flesh all these lists of just wicked, horrible things. And then he says, hey, but the fruits of the Spirit of God in your life, it's love. It's one thing. The fruit of the Spirit is love. How do I know that I have God dwelling in me? You love. You love God and you love others. 
And underneath love comes joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. J.B. Phillips, I just want to quote his paraphrase of this whole section of Scripture. And I have it on the screen for you. He says, This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. We know in part, verse 9 tells us, we prophesy in part. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, Paul the Apostle, he was no Peter, Peter Pan, just a, an eternal boy, all right? But sadly, in our culture today, we've got BAMs or whatever they're called, boy men. And we see that this becoming mature didn't just happen. Paul had to willingly, intentionally put away childish things. And you know what? So much of what stops love from happening in our life it's, it's childish immaturity. And Paul would say, I intentionally put it away. He says, from now on, we, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Happened to be that the Corinthians were well known for their mirrors that they produced. And the mirrors that they produced were just made out of polished brass and polished bronze. But can you imagine looking at yourself and trying to get yourself ready through a polished piece of metal? It was dim. It was, you know, left was right and right is left. And I'm upside down because of the way this mirror is. So it's like trying to get my makeup on in the morning. Great. You know, now we, we even though we have the revelation of God towards himself, man, when we get to heaven, we're going to see him as he is. We're going to know just as we know ourselves. Verse 13 says, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, chapter 14 starts out talking about the gift of tongues and prophecy and interpretation of tongues. He starts out by saying, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love. We're going to have the worship team just come on up, but before we actually close in a song, I just want to read these passages from 1 John. And we have them on the screen today for you. 1 John basically bluntly telling us, if you think that you love God and are walking in light, but you hate your brother or don't love your brother or sister, you're being lied to, you're lying to yourself. We didn't have a chance to read through these in the first service, but I feel the Lord would have us be exhorted by them in this second service. If you'll endure with me, love endures all things, right? Even a really long-winded pastor. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, He who says, in, or excuse me, whoa, am I even reading today? 
Yeah, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you jump over a chapter to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You jump over another chapter to chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Chapter 4, verse 20 of 1 John, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, you might enter sister, you might enter wife, you might enter husband, you might enter friend. If someone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And finally, 1 John 5, 1 through 3, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we, keep, uh, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. As we close in worship, we're gonna take communion together. And you can just set your things aside and we can just move just towards prayer right now. As we take communion, we're going to remember. We're going to take the symbols of the bread and the cup, these symbols of God laying down his life for us. Letting his body be whipped and stripped and bruised and beaten. Letting the blood pour forth from his veins. And he was patient in that. He could have called down legions of angels to save him. But he endured. As we are confronted today with what love is and what love isn't, I pray you would be real right now. Where you've been shown your failures by the Spirit of God, acknowledge those sins before the Lord. Say before the Lord, I see where I've not been walking in love, I've been walking in hatred. I've been deceived thinking that I love God, but I don't love you, Lord. I'm not obeying you and I'm not loving my brother. 
And that as you would take the elements of communion and hold them in your hand, you would just confess your sin and remember what the sacrifice of Jesus has done for you. When Jesus in all of his perfect love came and laid down his life so that if anyone would believe upon him, he would put his perfect love upon them and into their account. And he would take all of your screw up love, the non-love, and he would put it upon himself. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, my lack of love upon his shoulders. Today, before you even take communion, before you put the bread in your mouth or drink of the cup, today, confess to the Lord those areas that you've not been loving. Acknowledge them as sin. Receive forgiveness. And receive from the Lord today by drinking from the fountain of love. Perhaps you're here with someone today and Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that if you go to worship and you come before the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, go. Go to your brother and, and tell them about this and, and ask for forgiveness and humble yourself. And then come back later and worship. Perhaps you're here today with someone or someone across the room, that's someone that you've been holding records of wrong against them. You certainly haven't been walking in love towards them. And you would humble yourself today. And you would begin just this journey of agape love. We're gonna sing a song about the Holy Spirit just coming upon us and that he would show us his heart, show us his ways, show us his glory. And you know, he's done that today, showing us that the greatest evidence of the Spirit upon is love. Let's cry out for more of the Spirit, crying out for more of love. Come forward as you're ready. Take the elements of communion to your seat. Reflect upon what Jesus has done Confess your sins of the Lord. Receive forgiveness. Receive agape love. And we'll worship together.